Welcome to Multifamily Syndication Unscripted, a show that teaches investors the truth about multifamily real estate. Your hosts, Ben Labovich, Sam Grooms, and Scott Hollister have more than 30 years of combined experience in real estate and finance. We are active multifamily syndicators and operators, providing you with detailed and cycle-appropriate content. Absolutely no fluff. So, if you want to be smarter about how and where you put your capital to work, listen up. You will learn what works in today's market conditions. All right, welcome to episode number three with Ben Leibovich and Sam Grooms with the syndication multi. What the hell is this thing called again? Yeah, I knew this was coming. I think we we settled on multifamily syndication unscripted. All right. <laughs> but the clothing is the same throughout each episode for the entire I was first. Season. Say, you guys look familiar. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, so maybe we need to go back and explain to people why. Because we decided to release uh, a, a season at a time. So, like, however many shows we get in the first season, we don't even know how many shows we're going to get in the first season because we know what we need to get through. But like. It's ballooning, right? We thought we were going to have 10 shows and that would be enough. But then we realized we want to keep the shows to 30 minutes and we realized we can't get through everything in season one that we want to get through. So now it's looking like 12 shows. How many shows we end up with is like nobody knows at this point. But the point is we're recording all these shows uh, probably, you know, on three different occasions. So once we sit down because we're busy, you know, I, I mean, I got to have time to pick my nose and everything else. So, we're, we, you know, we're, we're sitting down and we're going to record four shows. So our clothing and everything is going to be the same. And by the way, Scott's handling all of the electronics for us. And he is on Eastern Standard Time. So for him, 8 a.m. is for, for Sam and I. We're in Phoenix at 6 a.m. And next week it'll be 5 a.m. And next week it'll be 5 a.m. <laughs> So we're not starting at eight. We're starting at nine because this, this barely happened right here. I went straight from the shower to the computer. It was just, it was, it was barely didn't happen. So, um, but that's why the clothes are the same is because like, you know, we're not going to go and change for you guys on like every episode when we're recording everything on the same day. So if well, and this is my to- uniform. So you wouldn't know if I was changing anyway. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> that's true. He wears the same, like, V cut black t-shirt, same t-shirt every day. Not not same t-shirt, but same outfit basically. Okay, you guys, today we're talking about cap rates because we dropped off in in the second show with kind of backing into having to know um, more about the cap rate. So we're going to have that discussion. So we, again, just like everything, we want to start with a little bit of a wider scope view and define certain things and then funnel everything down into more detail. It, that just seems to work best. Okay. So let's start with identifying what cap rate is. There's a lot of misconception out there about what is cap rate. Wouldn't you agree, uh, guys? I mean, you, you get it and you know I keep saying bigger pockets because that's that's the elephant in the room right that's where all the not all but vast majority of real estate conversations online happen they happen on bigger pockets so and I've been on there for like close to a decade and I, I I've just seen it go through cycles and the bad advice never ceases to stop I mean you know because 
it, it's just new players come in and they, the same misconceptions are restated. And it's well, and I think the problem is someone gets a definition and then they just they're misusing that tool that they right. they learned and right. they don't know how to right. appropriately apply it. And so it perpetuates and perpetuates and grows and, and, and like balloons. And it's just, it's funny. It never stops. So what is cap rate? Cap rate is not a metric of investment return. So well, like, let's start with the definition. Definition of cap rate? Yeah. Like, so, so, we'll so let, the let's cut to it. CCIM. How does CCIM define cap rate? So it is a percentage that relates to the value of an income producing property to its future income expressed as a net operating income divided by purchase price, also known as the cap rate. So as investors, we have to capitalize the income of a property to determine its investment value. And then we have to know its performance at purchase price and the disposition of the asset. And that's what we were talking about before was that's the hardest thing ever is, you know, just starting out is how do you look at a crystal ball? Cap rate is. So it's, let's not confuse it. That is what it is. You're just saying it needs to be applied differently. Well, no. What it is, what it's describing is the mechanics yeah. of the uh, of the of the cap rate. It's not talking about the perspective of the cap rate. What does it really accomplish? What is it? You know, how do we? It's telling you if you want to discover what a cap rate is. Here's a mathematical formula. How do you how you do it? Right. And it makes it sound as though it's asset based, but it's not. Cap rate is not like a, I can ask you, Scott, what's the going cap rate in your town? That's a perfectly valid question, but it's not property specific question. I'm talking about your town or your state or the Midwest. So if you if you look at the CCIM definition, it is it is a mechanical definition which is potentially highly misleading because if you don't have perspective on it, then you misuse it and you start using the mechanics of it in the wrong way. And that's what happens. But, but here's the thing. And I think, I think Ben, where is we get confused and not even confused, but I think it's people, you know, and this goes way back. I remember my religion one-on-one class in college, right? It's not, that religion is bad across these different cultures is the people that make things bad. And I think some people um, just, just misuse the definitions. And, and as you said, it kind of gets spread through other mouths. But I think the important thing to note is that we take all this information in and, and stick it back to what the basics are. Right. So you see, I'm a definition, which is a great definition, but as you said, it's market specific and that's what you noted right town state and i think that's where real estate so let's take a step back you are right let's take a step back and define cap rate in layman's terms that folks can understand a cap rate is the rate of return that a reasonably aggressive investor would be willing to deploy capital put capital at risk for in a specific market, for a specific asset class, for a specific type of a building. Well, and let's not use rate of return. No, hang on a second. Because when you think of all of the investors in a specific marketplace thinking the same way, how much rate of return am I willing to accept? then what you have is a definition of market psychology. 
which is what a cap rate really is at the core of it. You are describing how bullish or not bullish people are about a particular marketplace in a particular asset class. So that's where you go into Phoenix and you say people are paying values consistent with four and a half to five cap. And then you go into someplace in the Midwest and you say people are willing to uh, deploy capital there, but they want huge returns, uh, you know, because the risk is higher. So what the cap rate really is at the core of it is a risk reward metric. It's a reflection of market sentiment for a given area, Correct. given class of property. Correct. So the issue I take with the CCIM definition and everything that that spans is that it focuses on the mechanics relative to specific asset NOI, specific asset disposition, specific asset sale price exit. We're not talking about specific assets here because when you do your market analysis in single family, you compare a bunch of sold comps to identify market trends and market behaviors. In income-producing property, those same trends and behaviors are reflected in the cap rate. They're based on how much people are willing to pay for income. That, that, real, that mechanical relationship CCIM defines is absolutely right. That's the mathematical formula. But what you are looking for is to say, this guy paid a six cap. That guy paid a six and a quarter. This guy paid 5.75. That guy paid a 4.75. Mm-hmm. So you go through your closed transactions and you back into the market psychology, which is, re- which is, which is expressed as a capitalization rate. That is, in some ways, a starting point for everything that we do, but it's not asset-specific, and it certainly doesn't doesn't, uh, uh, tee up our purchase. Right, and and, and that's the big distinction. It should be based on prior transactions. You should never use it to determine what you're going to pay for. To determine value for your transaction. Right. Right. So because coming back to episode two, we talked about our transactions are a flip. Well, a cap rate does not include it's it's basic. The formula is based on the income only. It compares the income to the valuation. Okay. well, if you are trying to back into the valuation and you use cap rate, that's completely you're not building in a profit margin. Because you're not looking for market cap rate. You're buying a delta. You need to build. It's a flip. You need to build some equity margin in it, which is why you can't underwrite the purchase that way. And no. it's, it gets very specific, very, very specific. Yeah. I think we're getting ahead of ourselves with the underwriting methodology. Right now, I think it's important to switch to the second half of the cap rate discussion, which is that we may know what the cap rate is today. In other words, we may know what people are deploying capital at today. We may know the market sentiment today. But how do you project what the market sentiment is going to be five years from now when your exit is supposed to be, or seven years, or 10 years? That's the second half of the question, right? Scott, am I missing anything? No, I think that's it's it's very important, and I think we have uh, you know certain key lessons that we need to bullet point. You know, it's it's a it's a one year snapshot. It doesn't take into account how you're going to perform with the asset, right? Those are your underwriting assumptions, 
Um, and it's, you know, it's a good quick measure for comparison of similar assets and what they sold for. But, you know, that simplicity can also limit the dependability of it. Um, so I think what you mentioned, you mentioned one word. Um, it's a snapshot. Mm. It's just like cash on cash return. It's a snap. It's a real word, real looking metric. It says, what have other people paid mm. for in place revenues? Well, what does that have anything to do with the performance of the property once you are the owner tomorrow mm -hmm. and on? It doesn't have, it doesn't, there's no time element priced into this. There's no dynamics priced into this. It's a static cap rate is a static metric, which is what makes it so dangerous. Now, our buyers, when we go to sell, are going to evaluate it like that. Why? One reason is they're stupid and they don't know any better. So majority of we're teaching you how to be more sophisticated than that. That's what this podcast is about, is to teach you the very utmost sophisticated way of looking at things. But the vast majority of people aren't going to be listening to this podcast and they're not going to be that sophisticated. So when you go to sell, they're going to take your NOI. They're going to pull a cap rate out of their whatever, and they're going to capitalize a value and call it a day. Well, if you're going to reposition your asset to prepare it for sale to that guy, then you got to know this is how he's going to be thinking. And, and you once you get to the larger, larger unit sizes and your, your exit is going to be a little bit different. So you're selling to someone a little bit more sophisticated. They're going to be underwriting to returns is which way you should be. Whatever your required returns on your capital are, whether that's a 14% IRR, 19% IRR, and then backing into what you can pay for it. And then there's a reflection of what the cap rate is that you pay. But you're underwriting to your return, your required returns on your capital, not a cap rate that the market's willing to pay. Right. So then the next question is, and, and I don't want to get into the specifics right now because we will later, of why exactly you need to know you need to have some kind of sense about what future cap rates are going to be. Um, but you do. We'll discuss why at a later time, but you do. You have to have some kind of rationale that says, okay, if I need to exit four years from now, chances are better than not that cap rates are going to be X, Y, Z. So this conversation needs to transition into what would some of the rationale be as we consider what the future cap rate is going to be? Sam, you want to kick us off? Yeah, and I think it's important to realize the tools you have to project cap rates. So one of the biggest things people would look at is interest rates. Um, Let me jump in, guys. We're talking about the market. Yeah. This has nothing to do with your property. You don't control cap rates. I mean, you, you, you do the value add and you change the cap rate upon the basis that you paid. If you increase the income, you obviously change that, you know, and we'll be talking about that. But the actual market cap rate, if you are selling a property and a buyer is asking the question, what is the going cap rate in this market? What's fair to pay for this property? You don't have any impact on that. This is a market-driven metric. So what we're talking about here is trying to understand what is the market going to do three years from now, five years from now, seven years, 10 years, you know, 
challenging. Sam, sorry about that. So this might get a little bit in the weeds, but the relationship between interest rates and cap rates, I, if I have an interest rate above my cap rate or a cap rate below my interest rate, I get negative leverage. I, it hurts me to leverage the property and nobody's going to sit here and spend or just buy a property cash and just leave it unleveraged. So I need my cap rate to be above my interest rate. So as interest rates go up, theoretically, my cap rate needs to go up. Now, if there's if you're doing value add, you can buy below interest rates and improve improve my, that cap rate, um, which is what we'll talk about in later episodes. Um, but just as a general, that's why the, that relationship exists. Um, as interest rates go up, your cap rates are going to go up. Um, so that's and that's that's a mathematical way to, to to look at that. A more kind of liberal arts way to look at that is that listen, if your debt service goes up because the interest is higher, so now you're paying more to the bank, your cash flow goes down. And if you bought this thing to collect cash flow from it, well, now you can't pay as much because that's the, like if the interest rate is going up, then you have to pay less for the property, so your principal is lower, so your debt service is compensated, so you stay even keel on your cash flow. And that's why, like, and of course, the less you pay for the income, as per that formula, right? The less you pay for the income, the higher the cap rate is. And that's why Sam is saying, mathematically, if the interest rates go up, the cap rate should balance out and go up. However, what have we seen so far? Well, yeah, and, that, and that's the next point, is there's other factors, right? Um, if, we, if I know that a certain market has extreme population growth and therefore rent growth and job growth, um, I, I know that those cap rates might be suppressed today, but they're going to be higher when that when those jobs come out online and the rent goes up and the jobs come. Um, so I'm willing to pay lower today, knowing that that's coming. So it, there's also market sentiment built into, like we mentioned before. Um, so people, so interest rates have gone up, right? Over the last year, everybody can agree. Interest rates have started to gone up pretty significantly compared to what we've seen in the last decade. Uh, but cap rates haven't gone up in markets like Phoenix. And you have to ask why. If I know that their people's debt service has gone up, their return is now going lower based on the financials. So why are people still willing to pay the same amount? And that's because there's, they know that property or population is going up, rents are going up, and there's job growth in the market. And that will offset what we've seen as far as interest rates increasing. And just to give you specifics, um, depending on who you read, you know, but the national apartment rent is at about $420 to $1,420 to $1,470, somewhere in that range, depending on who you read. In Phoenix, depending on who you read, uh, average rent is at $1,040 to $1,070. So, you know, Maricopa County has been for several years, number one, growth county in the country. So an investor asked the question, why is it that in the highest growth market in the country, rents are still 25% below national average? That's like saying that you can, you can rent an apartment in Phoenix, MSA for less expensive than Cincinnati, Ohio. Why? Does that make sense? And what's likely going to happen? And then if you answer that question, well, what's likely going to happen is that Phoenix rents are going to continue to go up. And last year, we clicked at 8.2%. This year, I think Marcus and Melichap is projecting 6.2%, but I think Collier's, I think, is projecting over 
Realtor.com is probably somewhere in there. Uh, depending on who you read, I, I, I don't see any reason for us to do anything less than what we did last year, frankly, because the rents are so low and that's what we're seeing in our transactions. But what happens mathematically is that if you pay a five cap today and you just compensate that 25% margin by which Phoenix is lower than the national average, you end up like at six and a half. So all of a sudden, without doing any value add, just by waiting and letting the rents go up organically, if you believe that they will, which majority of people believe that they will, which is why they're paying five gaps in Phoenix. Does that make sense? The other big perspective is let's 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 back out of that whole conversation and and take a look at it from from uh, high above in the sky and, and just kind of see, hey, is it really better to have a high cap rate or to have a low cap rate? You know, nothing ever is in real estate what it seems. It seems like if you're buying at a high cap rate, your cash flows are going to be much higher. That's what it seems. That's what the mathematical formula will tell you. The CCIM formula will tell you. Okay. But if you understand that a cap rate is a representation of market sentiment, it's a representation of risk reward. The low cap rates basically mean that people feel safer putting their money in. They're willing to accept less income, less return because they feel more bullish on the market. So the question you have is, do you want to go into a place that is a trading a 10 cap because nobody wants to spend money there unless they receive a tremendous return on their investment, at least pencil, a tremendous return, versus are you going to be safer if you go into a highly desirable market, so much so that people are willing to spend very low, very high amounts of money for the cash flow. That's a very interesting intellectual conversation. And the crossroads between the two is probably where the reality is, that you probably don't want to buy a static asset at five cap that you can't improve, nor do you want to buy in a market that is purely a 10 cap market, which is a, which is a whole another conversation, maybe for another show. But it's, a, it's an important thing to think about. Higher cap rate may or may not mean that you are doing better. Why? Because if it's a market that people have turned their back on, which is driving the cap rates higher, guess what's not happening there? Appreciation. What did we talk, talk about in the last show about all of the reasons for which you need appreciation? That's not happening in the 10-cap market. That's why it is a 10-cap market. And mathematically, as we go through our underwriting methodology, you will realize for the internal rate of return, it's incredibly difficult. Because the cash flows are discounted, it's incredibly difficult to drive the IRR strictly on cash flow. So you need the back-end appreciation. And if you're not getting it, there's problems you're walking into relative to that. And there, there's other reasons you want a low-cap market in certain instances. Like for us, we're doing a flip. So we're improving the value of the property through the income. And a cap rate tells me 
how much people are willing to pay for that income. So in a five cap market, I'm basically getting, it's a take, that's a 20 times multiple of the income. So if I improve the income $1, the value goes up $20. But in a 10 cap market, that's only a 10 multiple. So if I improve that the property by that same dollar, I'm only improving it the value by $10. Because people don't value the income that you are creating nearly as much in that market. Why? Right. Because there's something about that market that makes people not trust that income. Right. Maybe they can cancel it, but they just don't trust it as much. Right. And so, yeah, and I'm doing the same effort in both markets, but one, I'm getting rewarded twice as much as the other. And so that's another benefit of being in a low-cap market. Um, not only that you get the built-in income, people are assuming that rents grow up are going to go up uh, because population growth and job growth, that you're also rewarded for that more than the other market. So it, right. it, it helps your, uh, your value exponentially. So this has been a kind of a very high level, very involved conversation, but we need to finish it up with a recognition that you can't make money in a five cap market. You just, you, you can't. A five cap market exists for wealth preservation. A five cap market, what it tells you is that it's safe because of population growth, because of income growth, because of all of those, you know, baseline economic dynamics that make a market attractive. That's a preservation play. It's a specific kind of buyer that buys at a five cap. We can't afford to buy at a five cap or four and a half cap unless it's a very, very, very serious value add because that's we're not looking to preserve capital. We're looking to make a lot of capital. We're looking to make wealth, not to preserve wealth. Our buyer is very likely going to be the guy looking to preserve wealth. But we are looking to generate wealth, to create wealth. So for us, a five-cap market only works in a very strict scenario that fits very neatly into a very dialed-in piece of underwriting. And that's yeah, what... It's a perfect market for a flip, not a perfect market for buy and holds. And for us, it would be a perfect buy and hold because... By the if end, you have of the year, value, if you have the same business plan as us and just hold on to it, right, right, right. Because the whole idea is that we're coming into a five cap market, but by year three, our income uh, facilitates our basis uh, being at eight and a half cap. Well, not only do we have a delta between our basis and the market, you know, five cap, but we also actually can live with this cash flow at eight and eight and a half cap rate. You're, it becomes a cash flow play, a very, very, very nice, smooth cash flow play, okay? Um, but we need to switch. We need to talk about how to project future cap rates. Just we need to talk about it. So, so you started, Sam, you, you, you touched on it that uh, I, you know, not ideally, but like logically, there should be some kind of relationship between the interest rates and the cap rates. We haven't observed it. Uh, in some of the hotter markets. Uh, and when I say hotter, I mean there's reason to believe that there's a lot of future growth. And so people are paying forward for the future growth, which is what's compressing the cap rate like in a place like Phoenix right now. 
But we need to take that several steps further. Like, let's say you're holding the property for seven years and you need to kind of, you, you can't peg it because you don't have a crystal ball, but you need to have some kind of sense about what's going to happen with cap rates over time. So walk us through kind of the, the, the rationale. I mean, one way to look at it would be to say, hey, the cap rate's going to stay the same. Let's just, you know, put our heads in sand and pretend the cap rate's going to stay the same. That's, That's probably good. a little stupid, right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, so let's take that off the table. What are the options for so, the rationale? So what, so what we did is interest rates are starting to go up. And when they when we first started increasing them or the Fed started increasing them, they, they said there was about a 1% interest that the interest rate increase that they were hoping to do uh, when Ben and I started buying. And so what we said is let, let's project cap rates are going to go up at least that. And then let's add up, add on a little bit more just for market sentiment. Um, and, and let's just project that evenly over our hold period. Um, even though we haven't seen them, go up yet, we are still projecting that same 1%. Um, it, it could be, nobody knows when that's going to happen, if the cap rates are going to go up. But there could be pent up uh, pressure that just hasn't, real, that we haven't realized yet in the cap rates. Because remember, they're, they're on history. So it might take a year for those averages to start coming back up. Um, so we are still projecting a 1% increase. Um, in fact, more than that, but there's no one way to do it. It's very, how Ben would say, artsy-fartsy. It's uh, liberal arts. It's, it's not, you can sit here and predict this is exactly what it's going to be in a year from now. Um, so because of that, we probably put a little bit more cushion in, into it uh, to be conservative. Um, when we go to sell, cap rates likely aren't going to be one4 or 140 basis points higher than they are today. Um, but what if they are? And so I wanted to, I want to have that in my underwriting just to be safe. Um, but there's really no right or wrong way to project the increase in cap rates. Yeah. The only thing that's wrong is to not think about it at all. Yeah. Like to, to, to pretend like there's no dynamics there and nothing's going to happen. So you have to think it through and then you have to rely on, on people who study this. I mean, we're not smart. No, nobody on this podcast is smart enough to really know or, or, or even be entitled to like uh, an institutional opinion. There are people sitting around studying this stuff and, 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 and mapping this stuff out to try to figure out what the market, because we're talking about market sentiment, you know, so right now, there's so much lacking inventory for between $750 of rent and $1,200 of rent. The fact is, construction costs being what they are, you can't build apartments for plus or minus $1,000 of rent. You can't cash flow that. So with that being the case, there is a segment of real estate, class C, let's call it real estate, which has incredible, I think, staying power and it's incredible resistance to cap rates going up simply because you can't replace it. You can't build it. There's a lot of class A construction going on that people are charging 1600 
$1,800, for a two-bedroom, two-bath, $2,500, depending on which city you're in. Most people can't pay that. Most people can pay $800 to $1,200. And you can't build that. So you have to incorporate that into your thinking. So maybe the cap rates on class A stuff go up, but maybe the cap rates on class B and C stuff stay compressed. You know, there's a lot of thought that has to go into it, but you have, you're talking about sentiment and sentiment changes. It's cyclical. So you have to expect that at some point it's going to change. If for no other reason, then there's going to emerge another asset class that people are going to find equally or more attractive than real estate right now. Real estate is. You can get some yield here and you get some preservation here. You're not making any yield on bonds and you're playing Russian roulette in, in, the, in the stock market. And so real estate is kind of like what people are backing into because of all that. This may change. If we have a crash in the stock market, people are going to lose interest in real estate and deploy a lot of money at what they feel is you know 50% basis in the stocks. It, it could happen. So we don't know. So cap rates are going to go up. The only thing we have to leave you with is be mindful of the fact that cap rates are cyclical. They will likely go up. Make sure that you address this in your underwriting. The Fed, uh, their stated policy is 3%. They, they see that as neutral. Uh, when they were at 2%, there was reason to believe that they would go up 1%, and that would reflect in interest rates. They went up half that much. They've now stopped growing. I just read an article from a couple of days ago from the New York Fed that he's saying that now he believes we are at neutral and there is no reason to go up unless the inflation kicks up or, you know, X, Y, Z. So we didn't go up as much as they thought initially. They're blaming Europe. They're blaming, you know, whatever, slow down here, whatever. Um, Maybe they'll go up more. They will probably go up more because historically 3% is their neutral historically. So we can expect the, the, the interest rates to go up by at least another half a percent, probably good to underwrite 1% just to be safe, even at this point. And I think that's the biggest issue. When you're dealing with investor money, you want to be conservative. You want to be safe. Just, yes, we could do a half a percent increase instead of a, over a 1% increase and pay a whole lot more for a property and get every property we absolutely bid on. But is that risk you want to take on? Absolutely. Risk versus reward. Yep. So what I, from, from what I learned is don't underestimate your cap rate and keep it the same as Ben's clothes. You want to discount it, right? You want to change <laughs> it. So. Duly noted. It's a nice shirt. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> it's a nice shirt. <laughs> I wore nice threads this morning. I love it. College shirt. It's official. All right, Ben, Sam, take us out. Next episode. Guys, we have no idea what next episode is going to be about because we are <laughs> unscripted. We are hopeful that you found this educational and a little bit entertaining for Sam Groom, Scott Hoster, myself, Ben Leibovich. Have a good day and we will see you next time. Mm-hmm.
Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Multifamily Syndication Unscripted with your hosts, Ben, Sam, and Scott. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave a review and subscribe, and we'll catch you next time on Multifamily.